0: Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon.
1: So we've been going through the Genesis narrative and At times it seems to be difficult to find who the ultimate protagonist is, who the uh, hero of the story is, but I would argue as we move through this that we'll see that God does use human vessels um, to accomplish his redemptive purpose. However, ultimately he seems to be the one, without him there would be no hero in the story, there would be no success in God carrying out his redemptive plan to restore what was lost in Eden. So let's pray, and uh, we'll get into the scriptures, Genesis chapter 12. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We pray, Lord, that every one of us would understand the significance of this chapter and this man, Abram, you called, and why, not, not that we understand why you chose him specifically, but why all of us have so much to be thankful for in the fact that you did this and you accomplished something through his life and his people's lives that doesn't seem like it could have been accomplished without you doing it this way. So we we praise you, Father, and we pray that you would open up this passage in a way that we might not have thought about it before. But if it's something that we're very familiar with, Father, may we be reminded and encouraged uh, of the deep truths in it, and uh, may it cause us to worship you more deeply. In Jesus' name we pray so just a quick review especially for those of you who have just joined us for the first time we talked about how God created everything and it was good, at the end of his creation he used an additional phrase describing it as being very good but then the fall of man Adam and Eve chose disobedience and autonomy over obedience and submission to God he ultimately just had one commandment for them to obey and he gave them freedom to explore and do what they like within the, the creative elements that he had provided for them in the garden. So Genesis 3.15, however, we get a glimpse of hope, and it's not something man understood or that they had the ability to accomplish, but it's something that God was doing, and he gave us just a small snippet of uh, the fact that the story is not over. Then we come to the flood narrative, Is Dr. Spivey talked on a few weeks ago, and the wickedness of man had become so great that it seems like God almost hit the reset button, and there's a lot of um, difficulty in always understanding the whys of why God does certain things the way he does, but we know that he did it, and we know that God is long-suffering, and he is not quick to judge and condemn mankind. So there was a long period of time where man had the opportunity to repent, As Noah and his sons were working on the ark, it seems to have taken around 100 years. It's quite a bit of time for them to look and see the crazy endeavor he was getting into and wondering, why is he building this big boat? Well, there was ample time and God gave the world grace and mercy, but only Noah and his family were saved. God created a new beginning for mankind through Noah and his descendants. Then, last week, uh, Joel brought out some incredible truth from Genesis chapter 11 Uh, once again, mankind had come together. They were still speaking the same native tongue. Uh, The languages had not been uh, confused, and the people had not been dispersed yet. And they, in a sense, were seeking a life and a name apart from God. They, They, in a sense, fell into the facade of human wisdom and ambition, which to them seemed to bring success and security. But in the end, what was the result? It brought confusion and dispersion, right? So, yeah, thank you, Joel, for helping us see the contrast. There's such a contrast between Genesis 12 <laughs> and Genesis chapter 11. I love how the, uh, the writer, the narrator, inspired by the Spirit of God, has put this together so beautifully and helped us understand, I believe, why Genesis 12 is so incredible and why ultimately God is the hero and the protagonist of the story in Genesis, the Genesis narrative. So the the question we get to now is, um, after reading Genesis 11, is will this Edenic, Edenic blessing ever be gained? What was lost in the fall? Like one of my professors, he yelled it at the top of his lungs when he was describing the fall. He said, in a sense, Things will never be the same. You can look back, but it will never be the way it was before. That decision changed the course of history. Adam and Eve's sin and their disobedience to that one commandment that was clear and it was explicit, it changed the course of human history. But thank God that we have a God that lives out of time and he's omniscient and he's all-powerful and he is able to redeem and save those things that on our human level seem to be hopeless so the second question that might come to our minds as we're reading this story if we haven't read ahead is is there anyone who is righteous on the earth third question is how will god successfully redeem mankind from their fallen state so i think the narrative kind of leaves these possible questions hanging in the balance and then we get to genesis chapter 12 I want to, a quick little uh, recounting of uh, one of my wife and I's favorite movies, The Count of Monte Cristo. If you've never seen that, I'll I'll describe a brief (laughs) synopsis of kind of where I was placing myself when I thought about, um, if I were in this story and I didn't know what was going to happen beyond Genesis chapter 11, at least up until through the Tower of Babel and the dispersion. where would I be? What would be my state of hopelessness? Well, this guy, Edmond, I believe they're French. It's, a, it's, a, it's, fil- it's filmed in, in a theme in France a few hundred years back. And he was wrongfully accused of murder and sent offshore to a prison called Chateau des If. Very interesting, but it was a place that they sent criminals that didn't actually commit a crime. The government was so ashamed that they put their criminals there, and, and the warden of that prison acknowledged that that was the case. And Edmond, when he got there and realized his grave situation, knew he was not getting out. And so he had regular yearly anniversaries, heavy whippings, he had horrible food, he was falling apart physically like the other um, cellmates. Who It was such a um, dungeon carved out of rock, you had no idea who was around you, there was no way to see or feel anything other than what was in you, all the stones in in, in the room. And so, essentially, he was in this prison cell, and he had done so much to motivate himself, but he had lost all hope. He was trying to kill himself. He tried to hang himself one time. He was ready to die. He's like, I am never getting out of here. I don't think anybody gets out of this place alive. It was a very, very uh, tight lockdown circumstance. I I would say it would Looking at it, it's probably 50 to 100 times more of a challenge to get out of that place than Alcatraz in San Francisco. So it, he, he knew that there was no hope until his prison cell neighbor, this guy, he kind of looked like Gandalf. Uh, all of a sudden, one of the tiles, one of the pieces of stone in the floor started raising up. <laughs> And he, he couldn't believe, it. he said, what's going on here? And, and all of a sudden, this head popped up, and he blew all the dust off. It was this old guy, and he thought he had actually dug his way out to the outer wall. He says, I, I presume that I was at the outer wall. But then he realized he was in Edmond's cell. And so they worked together, and they ended up escaping. They, and he ended up being trained in so many ways. But the point before this guy came up through the ground and gave him hope, he had absolutely no hope. He literally had no equipment to take his life, but he was doing everything he could to end it. So, you guys, I would say in this story, it's pretty grave. God has done so many things to give mankind grace, and it seems like, kind of like the the, um, judges cycle, it seems like there's this cycle where mankind continues to fall back into their fallen, broken nature in such a way that, There doesn't seem to be any hope. It's like, who's righteous, right? Thank God there are guys like Noah, and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Well, it doesn't say that about Abram, but there was something going on. God knows who he chooses, and he knows why he chooses them. So we'll read verses chapter 12, verses one through three, and kind of go through this. Verse one, the Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So verse one, the Lord said to Abram, a contrast I want to to identify here is in Genesis chapter 11, verse 3, before the confusion of languages and the dispersion, what was the whole world that were conspiring together to build this ziggurat, this temple to heaven? What were they basing their direction or their motivation off of? It says in 11, verse 3, they said to each other. Do you see the contrast between the Lord said to Abram versus they said to each other? Two completely different voices. One was initiated from heaven, and the other was initiated by human reason. So this is what I believe the author is trying to do, is to show this radical contrast. God is the hero, but he uses man, and in order for man to do what he's called them to do, he must speak something to them, give them some sort of wisdom and command, some revelation from heaven, so they know what he desires them to do. So here we read uh, verse one, the Lord said to Abram, go from your land. So God gives Abram three commands, get out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house. It seems pretty specific. I mean, there's a, there's a lot going on there. Um, the first thing that, I'd like to note when he says, when God says to Abram, get out from your land, I translate that as hometown. When you're in your hometown and you grow up with family and friends and a set of expectations, from my experience, and I think maybe some of you guys can relate, this produces an element of complacency. Things are already kind of set for you, they're fairly predictable and if things are t- tough, a lot of times you can re- rely on your family, on the community to help you out. It's a lot different than being in a strange land, not knowing anybody, and having the same responsibilities to take care of your family. Completely different scenarios. God's plan for Abram was radically different than his culture's expectations for him. I believe that is why get out of your land was so important here. The second part, this, again, this is all in verse 1. Get out from your relatives or your kindred. Your relatives will have a different vision for you than God does, and it often causes tension and strife. Again, these aren't things that always happen, but in general, God knew what he was doing. If he could have accomplished through Abram what he desired to accomplish by saying, these are the promises, but stay in the land. Stay with your family. Stay in your father's household. I believe that's what he would have done, but I, I'm, I'm trying to help us understand why the Lord might have done it this way. And I, I think a lot of us can identify with these things, especially those of us in this room who have given up a lot to serve God and to follow His call. So, yes, the different expectations that your family will have can, in a sense, cause you to not think outside of the box and entertain a possibility that you might not going you might not be going down the path that everyone in your family has gone. Not that what they're doing is amoral or, mor- or morally wrong, but the fact that if there is something different, sometimes it takes getting you out of your context around people that are actually going in that direction, that understand your circumstance, that can encourage you so that you can actually um, get what you need to move in that direction. So the third thing is get out from your father's house. I mean, I believe all these things were in, intimately hitting home with Abram, but I, I think this was one of those things that really hit home. In, in the ancient world, when you were in your father's house, and a lot of this is similar today, um, there was some sort of a comfort and stability that was brought by the patriarch of the family. Um, they took their role of overseeing and providing for their family very seriously. It brought comfort, stability, security, familiarity, and protection. So you can imagine the context here. There are a lot of things in this circumstance that can make it really difficult if Abram stayed in all of these circumstances. The lot God had given him in his natural life, in his natural birth, um, can actually do a lot more to hold him back in following this radical call God had on his life than if he had done exactly what God was asking him to do, to get out. The interesting thing about this passage is, well, first of all, I believe God was transferring Abram's dependence from his familiar context onto the Lord himself. Sometimes our greatest dependence on the Lord is when we actually leave everything familiar and go to a place we are unfamiliar um, he says to the land I will show you. there are many Old Testament scholars do believe that the land is ultimately what God had intended the whole time. God created the earth, and God had all set up exactly how man and woman needed to thrive, and then He placed them in the garden. Well, there's something amazing. God had provided mankind with this incredible blessing of Eden, and it seems like God is always seeking to bring humankind, his followers, into a land that is a blessing that flows with milk and honey. Because how can you flourish if you are in a land that is falling apart, that does not have any potable water or um, sustenance or uh, just good morale? There are so many things about the land that you live in that are extremely important that we take for granted in our industrialized advanced culture that God understood were incredibly important to these people. The thing that's really interesting about um, in the Greek Septuagint and in the Hebrew Bible, that word for said, it just seems like it's a simple past tense, meaning that God said it. It doesn't say that he continually said it, but the interesting thing is it seems like there might have been something going on in Abram's life and his family's life in terms of how God was revealing himself to them, before we see the interaction that God seemingly had privately with Abraham, with Abram come into life publicly. Because when we look back at verse 31, Terah, his father, took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, Lot Haran's son, who Haran was one of his brothers who had passed away, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son, Abram's wife, and they set out together from the Ur of the Chaldeans, or the Chaldees, however, you know, whatever translation you have, and to go to the land of Canaan. This is exactly what God had called Abram to do, but we see that his father and some of his family went with him. So it seems like whatever God was doing in this family's life, it was so powerful. And of course, we can speculate if at a Abram was partially disobeying God because he didn't fully get out of his father's house. He was bringing his father with him. Um, I'm not sure if that's really the point, but it's highly possible. However, the encouraging factor is that God accepted Abram's obedience, regardless if it started feeble and anemic. Because as you look, as you go farther and farther into the story of Abram and the narrative of Genesis, you see a man who grows in their walk with God. You see a man who's sanctified, who grows in their sanctification. You see one who is faith is built up, section by section, moment by moment. And God took him where he was at, a pagan called out of a pagan land. And in a sense, this is a miracle circumstance because God was saying, I will create and produce a people that was not a people. They were not a people before God said, I'm going to create a nation out of a guy that was not part of a nation that would later be called the Hebrew nation or the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel. That didn't exist. God actually created this nation and he started with this one man. So it is a miracle and it's God's initiation. It's God's work from start to finish. So I think it's incredible that um, God was already moving this family and they stopped at a certain place called Haran and his father, Terah, had passed away at 205 years old and God spoke to Abram. There's a really good chance he reminded him. We see throughout the narrative that God reminds Abram and he continues to encourage him. He reminded him and he said, Do all these things to a land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. You know what's interesting about this is, out of all the people God could have chosen, he chose someone with a barren wife. What does it say in verse 30 of chapter 11? Sarai, again, Abram's wife, was unable to conceive. She did not have a child. What do you think the Lord is doing Beyond just the surface level, in the fact that he, in his omniscience, chose this man, Abram. Well, I really do believe the main takeaway is that God wanted Abram and all of those around him and all of those that would come from his loins, his family, to know that apart from God's intervention, that nation promise, the land promise, all these promises would not have happened because. God would have to miraculously open Sarai's womb. And at this point, she's not 90 yet, but it mentions her age later on in the narrative. And so it's highly possible she's 60 or 70 years old now. I mean, even at this point, um, it doesn't seem like a a time that's the most ripe to have a child. But um, Abram took the Lord at his word. So... God is calling Abram out of his biological family to make a divinely constituted family out of him and his descendants. Through Abram's obedience, a nation and a people were birthed. So the emphasis in this narrative is on God's character and on his ability to keep his promise. Why would God choose a man as the founder of a nation who had a barren wife? This was beyond human reason. What did the community of humanity do, what motivated them to do what they did back in 11 verse three? And they said to themselves, what they did was based upon their reason and their understanding. And again, I, I love how this narrative makes such a radical contrast because Abram is, it's quite possible that he is the most talked about patriarch and Judeo-Christian fi- figure in all of the scriptures. We'll go on later to see how significant the theology Paul develops out of Abram's life and what God did in, in a few verses in Galatians and Romans. But Abram is extremely important. I, I would say, and again, God later renamed him Abraham, so this is the same, this is the same man. If we don't understand Abraham pre-law, pre very specialized covenants God made with the nation that he actually brought out of him, I believe we misunderstand some of the most key theology in the scripture. I'm excited to be able to teach on this guy because he truly um, has been a model in my life and how I understand um, Paul's theology in Galatians and Romans because of how I've come to understand chapter 12 and beyond, and how God works through him and his descendants. So, verse 2, I will make you into a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. So, he blessed him so that he could be a blessing to others. You guys, if you're starting to notice this in the language that I'm using, and the scriptures are using, um, there is so much overlap to the New Testament calling, to Christ's calling, as he speaks to those who would come into the kingdom of God. We as Christians are blessed by God so that we might be a blessing to others. It's not something to keep for our, just for ourselves. The same families that were judged and dispersed in Babylon are those that will be blessed in Abram's seed. Have you guys ever thought about that before? <laughs> These same families that God dispersed, he didn't disperse them to judge and destroy them, like in the flood. He dispersed them because I personally believe that in God's wisdom, it gave the human race more of an opportunity in the dispersion and the confusion of language to actually come back and repent and turn to Yahweh than if He had kept things the way they were. There's something incredible about, as Paul says, and I believe it's Acts 17, he talks about how he, God is determined. The times and places of habitation for each and every individual, and it's, he seems to say that that is so that they might grope for him and find him. It's very interesting language, but I truly believe that in God's incredible wisdom, uh, Genesis chapter 11 is, is not is bad when you start seeing why he did it and the and the beauty of it as we move forward in the narrative. But it seemed horribly terrible and it seems so confusing you know, as we, as we finished last week, which is why this series is so important to stick with it because as we see the narrative unfold, we realize these deep truths that were always there in the early part of Genesis, but they continue to resurface and come to light more and more, and we come to fall in love with God and the story of Scripture more and more as we see um, how simple but how beautifully complex some of these things are. So in verse 3, so he was blessed to be a blessing. In verse 3, I will this is God speaking still, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. Or it says in other translations, I will curse those who curse you. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Does that just limit it to Abraham and his descendants? I want you to think about that for a second. There's a passage I'm going to read, and it's either Galatians or... No, it's going to be Galatians Um, or we'll come back to that just in a brief moment. So all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Abram is not only the father of the Jews, but is the spiritual father of all who fear God, obey him, and walk with him. Paul draws this out a little bit in Romans 2.28, saying that not all Israel is Israel. Not all the descendants of Abram, from an eternal perspective, are true descendants because they must have the like faith of Abraham. Abram, they they it's not enough for them just to descend from the direct biological lineage of Abram. And you guys, the beautiful thing about all this is this all precedes the law. This all precedes any of these specific covenants God made with the, uh, the nation of Israel. And and so I believe that and, and we see it in the teaching of Paul in the New Testament. All of this truth in these passages, what God does through Abram's life, this has preeminence over the law. This has preeminence over what comes after that, in a sense, is a, you know, I would say in a lot of ways the law was an accommodation or kind of a holding tank to keep Israel, in a sense, as close to the Lord as possible because of their sinfulness, but also, as one of my theology professors discussed, and it makes a lot of sense, God designed the law in the future to protect his holiness, to show not only the nation of Israel, but the surrounding nations the difference between who he is and the fallen nature that his people continually acted out. He wanted, even though they were his chosen people to represent him to the nations, they failed in many ways, but God wanted to set a distinction, saying, These are, this is my law, this is my holiness. There's clear, definite repercussions for breaking it. And so it seemed like every time the nation of Israel um, sinned and disobeyed God, as we get into later times in the Pentateuch, um, God added more law. It's interesting, but if you, if you see that pattern, you realize that there's something more than just what maybe we discuss as the purpose of the law, it, it, it never, as Paul says, was there to actually produce righteousness, which is why I believe Abram and Abraham's life was so, is so incredibly important because this is where we find how a man becomes right with God, how a woman becomes right with God, how a child becomes right with God. God speaks and man obediently responds. That pleases God and produces righteousness. It's so simple, but it's so incredible, and it's so different than how the Jewish people had thought about their unique relationship with god they They missed it so much, and it came to fruition in first century Judaism in the way the religious leaders interacted with Jesus. They clearly were so far removed they were calling on father abram, <laughs> Father Abraham, but they did not understand <laughs> what Abram understood so Unlike the ark, which provided physical salvation from physical death, Abraham and his descendants would be used by God to provide eternal salvation. The effects of the fall would be redeemed and removed in Abraham. So what does the New Testament say about Abraham? Galatians 3.8. Now the scripture saw in advance, this is Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit speaking, the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abram, saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. That's incredible. So in verses two and three, Paul is saying, there's the gospel right there. The end of verse three. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Of course, Abram didn't understand all that this entailed. But nonetheless, as we see God continued to make um, His promises more sure in chapter 15 and 17 as he created these very, very um, substantial, I would say almost unilateral covenants, especially in Genesis 15 with Abram because Abram was doubting if this promise would come to pass, if he would truly be the father of many nations. And God said, yes, you're going to go to sleep and I'm going to take care of both sides of this covenant. The animals are going to be split and I'm going to walk through them. The covenant... The human covenant partner and the divine covenant partner side, they will be met in me. I promise you, Abram, as on my character, on my um, impossible to change, impossible to lie foundational character, these things will come to pass, so just trust me. So as Paul says, the gospel is clearly seen in Genesis 12, verse 3, the life of faith and how one becomes right with God, it is found here, and it's continually repeated before the law is given. And the studier of Scripture has no excuse to not understand what Paul is saying if he, truly un- if he or she truly understands what the Pentateuch has said on this issue. So, the incarnation came by God's plan through the physical lineage of Abram. The kingdom of God would be built and established by God's grace through Abraham's descendant, the unique and one and only son of God. So what does Abram do in verse 4? So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Thank God the rest of the story lays out he followed God, he obeyed him, and God's plan continued to move forward. Paul says in Romans 4:3, for what does the scripture say? Abram believed God, and it was credited to him or counted to him as righteousness. Boy, I would say if we are confused as to how to present the gospel to locals in a cross-cultural context, if we really press home this, it's God speaks, God initiates, and we respond. It's us ultimately valuing his will and his design for mankind over all our will and our own reason. It's so beautiful how Paul is just simplifying this for, uh, especially us as, as, as Gentile New Testament believers. So God in the life of Abram reestablishes the preeminence of faith. And the reason I say preeminence as the divinely prescribed means to please God why, why, don't, why wouldn't I say establishes? Well, I would say this because I would argue that God's requirement in the garden was ultimately the same thing. It was to trust him over all other voices. The concept of faith has always been there. Trusting in what God said or trusting in your own human reason and other voices other than God. And ultimately, God is reestablishing what has always been preeminent as to how A man or a woman or a child not only becomes right with God but maintains a right standing with God. It's God's work through faith. So in closing, um, it's a righteousness through faith that precedes the law. I hope that helps us when we read through the law and get so confused as to what translates over into the New Testament from the law and what doesn't. Those Those conversations can be very helpful, but also very difficult. But ultimately, I love how God established what we need to know before the law existed. And may that be our hermeneutic or the way that we go about interpreting the rest of the challenging passages, knowing how a man or woman or child becomes right with God. It's through how God dealt with Abram and his descendants. So what it, it, our life as believers, how can we emulate this faith? This faith that is a faith that is distinct from other religions. It is a faith that pleases God. Number one, we need to understand the object. The object of the faith was in God and His revealed commands and promises. God cannot require something of us if we don't know what He wants. Thank God, just like a parent to a child, if we don't express to our kids what we would like them to do or what our you know, off-limits things are, what are you know on-limits within the household, how would they know? How can we justify encouraging them or disciplining them if they don't have a set of ground rules, a framework to go about living life and knowing how do I please my parents? I'm really confused. They haven't really told me I just know they seem to get upset all the time, but I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. Well, thank God that he has not left us. He did not leave Abram in that place. So we know the object, the evidence of Abram's faith was his lifestyle was a lifestyle of worship and obedience. For those of you, you might have noticed this, but I wanted to bring this up because I thought it was so cool. A little bit further on in chapter 12, um, when you read through verses 4 through 8, there is this... Statement It's a narrative. It discusses how Abram pitched a tent and created an altar, made an altar, and he worshiped God. And it was between Bethel, Bethel in Hebrew means house of God, and Ai, in Hebrew it means heap of ruins. He pitched his tent and built an altar and worshiped God in between those places. Ultimately, our end goal of our salvation is to be with God for eternity, to be in his house. But you guys, how well does that describe the Christian life? We are in tension between the world and the house of God, the presence of God, yet we worship God in the midst of that circumstance. And that is what I believe in the New Testament when Paul talks about I believe, I forget what chapter it is in, but that we are to be in the world but not of the world. Abram, this one verse is such a beautiful picture. The world is an absolute heap of ruins, and that is the direction it's going when God brings final judgment, but Abram was not home, and God was working out a plan to bring about the incarnation through his seed, through his people group, that were instituted by God, and there was hope, but in the meantime, we find ourselves in the same place as believers, worshiping in the midst between God's presence and the world. His obedience was not perfect, but nonetheless was acceptable to God. He truly learned to take God at his word. If we progress in his life, we find that he grew in his understanding of God and he became more a more mature, sanctified believer is the language we would use as New Testament, New Covenant believers, but I believe the concept is the same. I don't think he got Yahweh the Father treated Abram differently in terms of how he responded to Abram's faith as he does, as we respond to faith in Christ and the move of his Holy Spirit and what we learn in his word because we believe that in the triune God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they are all equally and fully God, and God is consistent. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. It's a difference between looking forward to the cross and looking back that is the, that is the primary difference I believe. So who are true children of Abraham in repeating this beautiful concept It's the family of faith. if you guys get a chance to look up later, I encourage you to meditate on John 839 I believe it's Jesus. He's distinguishing between the physical family and the family of faith. And as we move towards Christ's second coming, we find in much New Testament language that the family of God is actually more eternally valuable than the biological family. And there are times that God calls our experience with our family and uproots us, like he did with Abram, to be a vessel of change in the world for Christ and be a minister in his church. And sometimes that means we don't get to live necessarily in the midst of our biological families. But there is a priority as we move towards the eschaton, the end, that the spiritual family, God's family, his spiritual children, those who trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior, as their Lord and Savior, will are in a family, a people that will last on in eternity. So, the incarnate Son of God, in closing, Jesus Christ was the ultimate fulfillment of this promise, providing salvation for the Gentiles and Jews who exhibited like faith of Abram. Hebrews eleven six, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. You guys know how the rest of it goes? For the he or she or whoever comes to God must believe that he exists or that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. May we understand that our lives are not that different than Abram. And I would encourage you to keep this in mind as the, so much of the rest of this narrative through the Old Testament is gonna hinge on this truth as God is continuing this plan through one man that he is working towards to build a nation out of, ultimately, to bring the Messiah.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit Gamble Street Baptist Church has six church goals, to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.